Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Good morning and welcome to this special q and I'm Jack Tame. Today... This decision will mean New Zealand will have the widest ranging and toughest border restrictions of any country in the world. Extraordinary times. The Prime Minister is here live, followed by a public health expert answering all of your questions. Jacinda Ardern, of course, had planned to be in Christchurch to commemorate the anniversary of the mosque attack. Later in the programme, we will reflect on the anniversary as Muslim New Zealanders tell us what, if anything, has changed. These differences ain't that deep and we can live, we can live cohesively happily side by side. It's kind of like a winter. We're starting to see the dawn of our community coming back like a spring. But we begin, of course, with COVID-19. First up, we want to remind you of the new restrictions being introduced by the government. All travellers coming to New Zealand must self-isolate for 14 days from midnight tonight. Now, this doesn't include the Pacific Islands. Cruise ships are banned until at least the 30th of June, 2020, but cargo planes and ships are not affected. Sea and air freight routes will remain open for imports and exports, which means that supermarkets should remain stocked. The government says there is no need for panic buying. For the very latest, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, tēnā koe. welcome to Q&A. Morena. What changed? Why are you introducing these restrictions now? We've constantly been looking at what's been happening uh, with uh, international transmission and making decisive, clear decisions early uh, in order uh, to reduce transmission in New Zealand. So for us, this was the next step, uh, a really active, decisive, early decision going hard uh, to make sure that we do what they're calling flattening the curve. Uh, you will have seen that in many countries they've experienced quite a, a rapid spike in infection rates. Now what that does is mean it puts a real strain on your public health system. We won't be able to stop cases in New Zealand but we can try and slow them which is exactly what these decisions were all about. It is about putting health first. This means many thousands of New Zealanders will likely be in self-isolation. What does self-isolation actually mean? First point um, I want to make is that actually we've been undertaking self-isolation as a tool for uh, COVID-19 for the last month. Over 10,000 people have successfully uh, self-isolated and it has worked. So what it means is essentially reducing down contact. You're staying at home. It doesn't mean you can't go outside. You can take a walk around the block, uh, but you can't go into public places and places when you're interacting with others. You need to essentially stay pretty much confined to your home. So if you're in a shared living situation, whether you're in a, in a family or a flat or something like that, how do you stay away yeah. from other people and in look, your it is, abode? It is possible because actually the way that this virus spreads is literally if you are sharing or in contact with droplets. So if you're in uh, close enough, as someone can sneeze on you, um, then, then that's where we're trying to keep that distance. On the Ministry of Health website, there is good guidance on people who are in flooding situations or who might be sharing a home on how to manage even things like meals and cleaning. Yeah, what do you do for that, that stuff? Like, what do you do for bathrooms and yeah, dinner plates? Essentially, you're washing your dishes separately, you're making sure that you're preparing food separately. Simple, obvious things, but good guidance is available on the Ministry of Health website. And again, as I say, 10,000 people have done this and we've done it successfully. I think some other points to make, though, because I've seen a lot of questions around 
is self-isolation successful? The answer, and are people compliant? The answer is yes, people have been compliant. But what we do at the border is we have someone fill in a form that's essentially like a customs form mm -hmm. that when you arrive. That is then uh, handed over at the airport to a nurse who talks you through what you are required to do to self-isolate. We then follow up with you. Healthline will call you, and we're going to step up that enforcement, things like spot checks to ensure people are self-isolating. And if you don't self-isolate, there are quarantine powers available to us. We can put you in a facility and monitor your movements. Now, my view is that most people, in fact, I've seen no cases where they haven't, are following those requirements, but we do have those abilities available to us. Just tell us more about the quarantine facility that you might be oh, put in. Is that a or a medical facility. Right, and, yeah. and, and uh, I mean, are you incarcerated? Is it is it like a I prison? Yeah, so, well, in a, you're in a medical facility, so of course it's, it's not like a prison, but we can put people on the door to make sure you don't leave. Now, those are powers we haven't had to use, and I do not anticipate having to use, but they do exist. Uh, keeping in mind, that actually travel has really fallen away as a result of our requirements on mm. self-isolation. You'll remember we put in controls quite early on Northern Italy. Five days later, five people came in from Italy and those amongst them will be residents, obviously, and citizens. Uh, and so it changes people's habits. People don't travel when they know they need to self-isolate. That is why we're having to put in those measures for airlines and work alongside airlines as a result. From your proje projections as they stand, how many people will have to be in self-isolation? Uh, look, that really depends on how many New Zealanders are coming home or uh, uh, at any given time. The foreign number of foreign nationals coming to New Zealand has already dropped away. Mm. And tourism operators will tell you that. Travel is drying up. And as I've said, uh, we already, of course, have restrictions before this on Italy, mm. South Korea. Um, in fact, South Korea, when we put these in, essentially flight stopped. Uh, there's still a lot of concern about enforcement. How many spot checks will you be conducting? And do you want members of the public to be phoning authorities if members, they... I want members of the public to, to look after their neighbours and community members who they know will have to self-isolate. Simple things like checking if they need food dropped at their door. Um, but actually, again, as I say, I mean, I, I've seen the feedback and questions about this. Mm. 10,500 New Zealanders have done right by their community by staying at home. In fact, when I visited Healthline, who are conducting those checks on people that they are in home and if they need mm. any assistance they told me one of the problems was people weren't coming out they right. were so paranoid about not doing harm to their community they were staying longer than 14 days but should we be reporting people who are refusing to self-isolate oh, if, if well we'll know if they're refusing to self-isolate but you know if we see that you know that at the point that we're advising them of what they're required but, I mean to if do, you have if you have thousands of people, people in self-isolation you can only do so many if people checks. wish to contact Healthline with any concerns then they could they can do that um, and but ultimately I don't think that's going to be necessary but of course there are avenues to do that um, if people believe that those who are meant to be self-isolating are not. And we have powers to deal with that. Why aren't we testing people at the border when they great, arrive? Great question. Uh, essentially because it wouldn't be a, a, a effective. Uh, we know that uh, tests, for instance, can produce um, uh, false negatives. And my concern would be um, that not only would you be putting all that resource into testing when it may not be accurate, um, is that uh, then it might create a false sense of security that people who need to self-isolate wouldn't. But what about just taking someone's temperature? That's Same enough. problem. Uh, so you can have COVID-19 
uh, be carrying it and be asymptomatic. Uh, that means it's harder to transmit to other people, but it also means it wouldn't show up in a temperature. And my concern again would be, if we checked everyone at the border and said your temperature's fine, they may be inclined to think they're fine and not self-isolate. We need people to follow the guidance and evidence. How does someone get home from the airport without infecting anyone else? And so, for instance, um, we had, uh, we've had very early on a case, um, you'll remember one of our first from Iran, private transportation. Uh, that's that's uh, the guidance that we're giving. That means that we can keep these things contained, um, that we can, of course, know who your contacts what are. What about taxi drivers? That's why we're asking people to take private transportation. So what if someone lives in Belclutha? Jack, Jack, I just come back to the point. Ten and a half thousand people have managed to do this, have worked through the logistics of doing this successfully. We have it on good authority that international carriers are pulling flights from Wellington, from Christchurch and from Queenstown. So I, I want to know what happens to people who are outside of Auckland if they arrive in New Zealand. Do they, do they travel on a domestic flight before they go into self-isolation? Yeah. How does that work? Yes, and, and look, that is what has been happening. And that's where we make sure that we're asking people, make sure that you're trying to reduce down your close contact with mm. others. Uh, make sure, of course, if you're, if you have a, uh, you know, if you, if you sneeze, sneeze into your elbow, make sure that you're keeping all of those precautionary things But up. on a plane, you're still going to be sitting next to someone. Uh, There's again, no way to avoid this is, that. And this is where we're making sure that social distancing. But yes, we have had to get people home. But again, we've done that already with 10,500 people. Why aren't we testing more generally? Well, essentially, the, uh, the basically what doctors are following are clinician guidelines that says if you believe you need to test, test. Uh, we have the scale and the capacity. Um, by early next week, we'll be able to test up to 1,500 people per day. So that capacity exists. It actually just comes down clinici to clinicians looking at your symptoms, looking at your profile and determining whether or not you, you need a test. So. Uh, my message to clinicians is if you believe you need to, test. There aren't limitations there. Is your advice that we can still avoid large-scale community spread? Uh, that, has to be, um, that has to be the goal. But what I'm very clear on is we will see more cases in New Zealand. So your language has changed there. So is it an achievable goal? Oh, no, no, goal? it hasn't. It hasn't changed. Well, no, no, I just mean, uh, like yesterday, for example, in your press conference, you said it is not realistic for New Zealand to have only a handful of yes, cases. Yes, which so, is exactly so, what I've just said. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, no, we will I mean. have more cases in New Zealand. We will. What we're trying to do is slow the speed at which we have the them because that means that we can support people in the right place. 80% of people will have mild to moderate symptoms. They'll stay at home and they'll be absolutely fine doing that. We want them to stay there uh, while, they're un while they're feeling unwell um, until, until such time that they can go back into the community. For those who need hospital care, we only want those who genuinely need it to be in our hospital system so that our capacity can manage. So that's why slowing cases are so important. You're expecting more cases. How many more? What, what do the projections say is likely at, at the moment? And I appreciate this is a fast-changing situation. Look, the, and again, the projections are only going to be successful as the, uh, and, and accurate as the information that puts what in. What do they say? So I, I don't have those projections, okay. but what we have are projections around percentage. So we know mm. 80, roughly 80% will be okay, will be mild to moderate. Um, at the upper end that you're talking about, 7% 7 7 roughly mm. who might be much more acute. Uh, and so that, that tells us what we need to think about with our hospital But capacity. the self-isolation precautions are all important. Who enforces... And again, as I say, 
there's no one bar Israel in the world right. has these kinds of requirements. Um, <laughs> this makes us the strictest in the world. Who is responsible for enforcing these rules though? Is it, is it police or is it public, public health? health? Uh, public health, but if you need to enforce your quarantine powers, that's when the police may assist with enforcement of quarantine powers. What precisely are the conditions in which you would take things to the next level? So, for example, uh, include the Pacific Islands in, um, in the self-isolation rules good, or put restrictions on domestic travel? Yeah, good question. At the moment, we've got one case in French Polynesia. So, you know, some of the things, of course, that uh, the restrictions are all about is cases coming mm. into New Zealand. At the moment, there aren't cases in the Pacific. But my bigger concern is about what's exiting into the Pacific. Uh, and so we are looking at uh, mm. increasing the question for every passenger departing into the Pacific. Have you got any symptoms? Have you been in close contact with mm. anyone who's self-isolating and so on? So we're going to up that in order to try and prevent any transmission into the Pacific. And I'll stay in touch with our Pacific leaders around what it is that they want to be happening at our border to protect them. What about domestically though? Are there conditions in which you will impose stricter rules? Yeah, and again, you'll see that we are very willing to try and get ahead by mm. making decisions early that will try and prevent transmission rates, and we will keep doing that. But so so what are, what are, for, for things to get even stricter, for all of us yeah. in Aotearoa, what, like, what needs to happen? So things like community transmission, I'll just give you a sense of what mm. that means. That means, at the moment, when we have a COVID-19 case that's positive, at the moment we can track where that's come from. Sure. We know where people have picked up that transmission. We're then able to contact trace all the way around that person. At the moment, uh, we've had for our cases that we've um, known, mm. we've had 100% success in doing that. So that means everyone goes into cipher isolation. Community transmission is when it gets harder to trace. Right. You can't tell how it is someone's transmitted it and you're getting these blocks of sporadic outbreak. So dozens, hundreds, thousands of oh, cases? Oh, when community transmission, you know, it doesn't have to be a large number for you to pick up that that's happening. Okay. And that's when you start moving into different phases around locking down different kinds of activities. Okay. Why haven't you released details of the economic stimulus package at the same time as introducing these restrictions? So we already announced roughly a week ago that this is what we were working up. So we gave ourselves a week. Uh, and For the economic package? Uh, yes. Uh, and that includes our business continuity package. Cabinet will be making decisions tomorrow and they will be announced the very but next day. But there's so much uncertainty. Why wouldn't you release it at the same time as these restrictions? This, there are going to be thousands of businesses. This will be the most significant package that I will announce while I am Prime Minister. And I need to make sure that we are actually targeting those businesses who need that help the most and that it's sufficient to make a difference to keep people in work. Uh, so we gave ourselves a week. That is even then ex an extraordinarily limited time for what we need to do. But I want to make sure we do something. That means that we do support those, that we make sure we put in some resilience into our businesses and we support people who may find their hours reduced and their work affected. You have been planning for this for some time. Give us a ballpark figure. I know the Australian package was almost 1% of GDP. What does the most significant package of your tenure mean in terms of numbers? And so what I mean by that is most significant in terms of things that I will do as a as a as a one-off uh, uh, in as a singular package in this way. Um, and so I will call it significant. But beyond that, you need to just wait 48 hours. Who's going to benefit? 
Those who are most affected by COVID-19. Are those employers or employer, uh, employees or employees? Uh, oh, this is about both. Employers want to keep on their employees. Employees we want to keep supported, so it has to be about both. Targeted or broad? Uh, at the moment, we're wanting to make sure that if you if you target, then your support uh, can be more generous, more likely to keep people in work. So targeted is what we've focused on. You've seen other countries that have done just singular payments. Uh, for me, and looking at that, I don't know that that would be sufficient to keep people connected to the labour market. And so we've looked at targeted. Will there be tax relief? Uh, again, 48 hours is all I ask. I need to present this package to Cabinet tomorrow. We just Decisions. need certainty. That, I mean, the, the problem, we have had, I know this is a fast-changing situation. in seven days, we are producing a hugely significant package. It will be presented within 24 hours to my Cabinet colleagues, and you'll forgive me for telling them first before you. 24 hours later, it will be announced. It will be significant. It will be designed to carry people through the worst of this event. But there is a question of certainty, isn't there? For New Zealand businesses that are going to be going in Monday morning, wondering whether or not they can afford to keep their employees ago, on in the coming weeks. And a week ago, we told them we would provide wage subsidies, and that's what we're doing. Have you had any advice about how much this is going to cost us? Uh, of, of course, because we're, in terms of the package, of course, in terms of the wider economic in, reforms. In terms of wider. Uh, I had advice two weeks ago that will already be redundant. This is moving so quickly. At that point, we had economists predicting something like 0.6% hit uh, to GDP. Everyone knows now this is outstripping that this will be significant uh, but of course we have all of that forecasting of course comes pre-budget and like uh, and in other forms at the moment I am focused rather than the prediction I'm focused on the preparation but it is it is you know of such concern to so many New Zealand businesses are, are we are we likely to have something worse than a standard recession I mean could this could we be entering a depression oh look many people are forecasting their course and our officials haven't provided formal advice in this regard, but you'll see that many economists have made predictions around recession. Jack, what we know is this will be hugely significant for the New Zealand economy, and that's exactly what we're preparing for, and that's what we'll be announcing that significant package on Tuesday. Finally, today is March 15th. Mm. The Christchurch event has been cancelled, but mm. do you have a message for... Kiwis on the anniversary of last year's mosque attacks. Um, I was I was with our um, Muslim community in Christchurch on Friday, and I'm very pleased I had that opportunity um, given events since. And it was actually the imams from uh, mm. the two mosques where this horrific attack mm. occurred, who have made their own call on behalf of the community, and they they want New Zealanders to remember through acts of kindness, through change, through doing doing something for others, mm. whether it's looking out for your neighbour or members of your community. And I would just reiterate that. Let that be the way that we honour those who are lost and let that be what we do on March 15, acts of kindness. And considering that event in Christchurch has been cancelled, are you looking at other mass gathering type events that will need to be cancelled. Do you have any more advice for us on that front? Uh, so uh, the advice that I gave just yesterday was that we'll be looking at guidance for mass gatherings that keeps in, uh, keeps in mind the nature mm -hmm. of the events. So it will be some tailored criteria if people are in close contact with one mm -hmm. another. If, for instance, it's not ticketed, so that means it's harder for us to track and trace people at events. Uh, and so there are certain events that, that you can see will be affected.
but we're going to follow pretty closely the Taiwanese model. They worked up a framework for mass gatherings that's been quite successful and that's what we'll be looking as a basis for our criteria. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, tēnā koe, thank you for your time. Kia ora. That dedicated health line number for advice and, informa and information on coronavirus is 0800 358 5453. Anyone who has visited an affected country or anyone developing worrying symptoms Call Healthline first or ring ahead to your GP. Please don't turn up without making a phone call first. Public health is the priority, but of course the economic impact of COVID-19 is going to be enormous. What do businesses and employees need from the government's emergency package? We'll look at that. And then later in the show, on the anniversary of the March 15th attacks, Muslim leaders who say their community is owed an apology. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. You just heard the very latest from Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Shortly we are going to consider what all of this is going to mean for businesses and workers in Aotearoa. But we want to take a closer look at the public health response first. Professor Michael Baker from the Department of Public Health at Otago University is with us from Pōneke, Wellington. Tēnā koe. Welcome Karina. to Q&A. Is this the right decision? Has the government done the right thing? Absolutely. I think this announcement has been greeted with a huge collective sense of relief across the health sector. Uh, when we look at the scenarios occurring overseas, we really want to keep this pandemic out of New Zealand. And the other thing we know, this is not influenza. I mean, influenza causes about 500 deaths every year in, in New Zealand. This is like 20 or 30 influenzas all stacked up on top of each other occurring at once. It would completely overwhelm the health system if it is not contained. Have we got a chance of containing this? We have a chance and this has been shown by countries overseas that with a very vigorous response you can contain this. If we look at now at Singapore and Taiwan and increasingly Hong Kong and South Korea and Japan, they're bringing numbers down or they've got very little local transmission. However, we have to add in the other critical part of containment, and this is, we've got the keep it out part, we've heard about, we need the stamp it out part as well, and this means a huge ramping up of testing and diagnosis to identify cases and also follow up um, contact tracing and quarantine of those contacts. And that will achieve a number of things. It will dampen down transmission, but also it will tell us if we've got much transmission occurring in the community in New Zealand now. Are we testing enough people at the moment? Not yet. No, we have to really increase this. In Australia, they've announced uh, fever clinics, which, is, which are purpose-built uh, clinics for managing this infection. You heard the Prime Minister talking about our testing capacity. Are you satisfied that we have the capacity for this? We have the, the capacity. We just need now the logistics of, of delivering this. How will those logistics work, ideally? Well, sure. Um, well, in the end, you're looking at a military-style operation. And in Australia, as I said, they've, um, they're creating fever clinics, which is an old-fashioned term, but it's basically saying that if you have the symptoms, particularly a fever and a cough, then you can go to these settings and you avoid contact with the GP waiting room and the hospital outpatients. And there you can be assessed, um, tested. And, of course, if you're very ill, you will be admitted to hospital or sent mm. to hospital. But it just makes the testing much more accessible. A military-style operation. Um, should we call in the defence force to assist? Well, that's really a decision for the government. But uh, it's all about logistics and scaling up really rapidly. Let's talk about self-isolation. 
is it effective and how does it actually work? Well, remembering the people who are self-isolated do not have clinical illness, they're well, and the concern is they may become sick during the incubation period, which can be up to about 12 days. So this is to really make sure that they are not having a lot of contact with other people, particularly in that potentially pre-symptomatic stage where they may be infectious. So it is avoiding all social situations. It's not home detention, as I think the Prime Minister has pointed out. It's still good to walk around the block. You can still talk to your neighbours across the fence and so on, but you just have to keep your distance. The Prime Minister pointed out, though, that, that people who will be entering self-isolation upon arrival in New Zealand can still fly domestically. Does that present a risk? I think it can be managed, and I think anyone arriving in New Zealand should talk to the staff on arrival about how they can manage that sort of risk. How does it work in a house, say, if you have uh, a parent or, or parents who are in self-isolation, children in the house, and you are using shared facilities, whether it be a bathroom or a kitchen, something like that? Yeah, I, I, it is challenging. But remembering, these people are not ill at this point. So it's not... The term isolation normally refers to people who are actually clinically ill, who are a high-risk group. So I think it's about taking very sensible precautions to reduce your contact and not have, obviously, contact, not go to social events, for instance. Yeah, tell us about the social events, because the Prime Minister says they're still considering um, some of the restrictions around mass gatherings. What do you think uh, we should be doing on that front? Well, th this is the whole suite of social distancing measures, and now we should be really starting with the, the easier end, which is more people working from home, and obviously cancelling large gatherings that are non-essential. Then we have the other you know, more uh, difficult measures like um, school closures and stopping public transport. And obviously they are further along the, the um, pathway, they're more disruptive, and they would certainly be needed if we have any evidence of community transmission in New Zealand. Are you taking public transport? Well, I, I'm on my bicycle. Would you take public transport? At the present time, uh, yeah, I would, just at, at the moment, but actually I, I don't need to. How, how, how many people would need to be infected with COVID-19 before we would need restrictions for those public gatherings, whether it be school or public transport? Well, it's a matter of looking at the extent of community transmission. And that's one reason we need to do a lot more testing. We just do not know about how many people may be infected in New Zealand. I think so far um, the signs are optimistic because, of course, there is routine testing for people admitted to hospital with pneumonia, certainly if they go to ICU. And remembering about 15% of people who are sick with this infection will wind up at hospital. And those people are being routinely tested now, and we haven't picked up cases. But that could change very quickly. So I think we need to really ramp up our testing and really get the stamp it out part of our containment working properly. When you say ramp up, how many tests should we be doing a day? Uh, I wouldn't like to give a number. It's more about the accessibility. Remembering we're in summertime at the moment, there are far fewer people mm. with respiratory illnesses, so that's a huge advantage for New Zealand. But basically, it shouldn't be... Everyone in New Zealand now should have access to testing that's very available. How long is this going to last? Well, this is different from influenza. It's a more slow-moving pandemic wave. I think we're looking at um, one to two years of potential disruption. And of course, all around the globe now, we're going to see these overlapping epidemics in different countries starting at different times. So 
we have to really, I think we're in it for the long haul, and we've got to think there's a whole new social norm for New Zealand. No one alive today has lived through a pandemic of the scale. The countries that have responded best actually are those who were exposed to SARS. So in Southeast Asia, they know what this is like. Mm. I mean, countries like Taiwan, uh, at one stage, were quarantining something like 100,000 people. So they know what it's about. And I think New Zealanders, are, we're going to have to learn about this new approach. Professor Michael Baker, Tenakwe, thank you for your time and expertise. Has thank the government you. done the right thing and what should it include in the economic stimulus package? Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post your views on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. The shutdown is going to have a massive impact on our economy. We will talk about that with our panel next. And then later, Muslim Kiwis, a year on from the massacre that took 51 lives. How has their experience changed? In many places, um, including this place, we are in a constant state of lockdown. Kia ora e te welcome back. On Tuesday, Finance Minister Grant Robertson will reveal the government's economic response to COVID-19. This will include a support package for businesses. The Prime Minister says a widespread outbreak would be far more harmful to our economy than short-term measures the government has introduced. I'm joined now by Tali Williams from First Union and Michael Barnett, the Chief Executive of the Auckland Business Chamber. Tēnā kōrua. I will ask you both. Tali, I'll begin with you. What do you think of the government's response? Well, I think um, one of the anxieties a lot of workers will be facing right now is what's going to happen to their jobs. We know that thousands of jobs um, who are um, in the tourism sector are going to be impacted by um, the uh, movements that the, the government has made. And those workers will be thinking about mm. where's my income going to come from. Um, so first and foremost, I think we need to be thinking about how we keep those jobs. Mm. And I think keeping those jobs is going to come in large part to, all, uh, to the government's um, proposals regarding wage subsidies. So the government has talked about these, this idea of giving employers wage subsidies that will help, for example, these employers mm. keep jobs. And I think that's the first thing we need to be focusing on, keeping the jobs. Michael, what do you think of the government's response? I think um, many would say it could have been quicker. Um, but I think that's probably too political, too easy. I think that um, the use of the word broad-based is the right way to be approaching it. I don't think it should be um, sector-based. I think it should be about keeping uh, people in employment. Mm. That, to me, is the most important. So that's going to be a, um, a subsidy as far as the business community is concerned. Just give us some perspective here. How significant do you think the economic impact of this will be? It's going to be massive, even now it is. If I have a look at um, hotel chains, um, probably running at 83% occupancy, they're going to be down around 30 and 40. If I have a look at many small businesses as a result of the tourism sector, um, many of them are right on the verge of going out of business today. If you have a look at central Auckland, if you have a look at the impact um, of having a a cruise ship here, a million dollars mm. a day contribution, plus the multiplier of effect that it's going to have on small businesses. All of that is lost, and that's putting business at risk. Can we quantify that impact here? We're talking about billions of dollars here. You are talking about billions of dollars, but you're also looking at um, you know, importers who can't get components um, to finish building projects. You're looking at exporters that still can't access markets. So. It's right across the board. It's mm. big business, it's small business. Tali, how likely are widespread job losses? 
Um, I think the impact is going to be huge, as I say, particularly in those um, sectors that rely on tourism. Um, and I think part of the government's package needs to address what's going to happen to those workers that are made redundant. Um, for example, many of these workers don't have access re to redundancy compensation because that's not in legislation mm. at the moment. But also um, what's going to happen to people that ne then need to move very quickly on to benefits. Um, you know, the government said that they're taking away the stand-down period to access benefits. But what about those people, for example, who have partners in work? Mm. Um, normally, there's a you know, they don't get the access to benefits. They're going to need them. People need two incomes in the house. What about casual workers and contractors? Yes, so casual workers and contractors um, who make up a large part of um, the, the hospitality workforce and those you know, who will be impacted um, will, will, will need some kind of security from the government in terms of access to benefits and support. Michael, can you be specific here? What does business need from this package? I think it's a, a decision by government as to whether or not they're going to allow job losses or they're going to provide a subsidy. To me, I think we should be stepping in there and preventing the job losses. And that should be the prime objective of government right how, now. How do you do that? Um, because what, what they'll need to do is to um, work closely with business, work closely with government departments that are going to be able to provide um, a quick response. To me, um, I look at sectors now, they are ready to start mm. shedding staff and if they're in that position, we need to have a quick response I, for I, them. I'm just interested in a logistical sense how it works. Is it, does a business apply to an appropriate government department and say, look, we, we are about to shed three staff here, this is why we need an 80% yeah. wage subsidy? I, I how does it work? Well, I don't think it's just about government departments. I think the best ministry to look after this is um, the Ministry of Social Development. They have great networks through New Zealand, and then mm. you've got business organisations that understand business, that coll can collect information, mm. that can help in the decision making. This isn't refined just to government department, this is the whole business community. Can the bureaucracy handle this? Um, I think it's going to be a partnership, and, and that's why I'm saying mm. we need to see business um, agencies, unions, government departments working together. You know, this isn't a time for politics, it's a time to make something work and that's in front of us and making something work is going to be the government's plan. That's their job. Yeah. They've come up with a plan, let's implement it. Tali, the Prime Minister there wouldn't be drawn at this stage on tax cuts. Would you like to see tax relief, uh, perhaps GST being scrapped for the time being, something like that? Um, I think the main thing is ensuring incomes um, for workers and ensuring that um, um, the businesses are staying open, mm -hmm. which, which means the wage subsidy is absolutely critical. Um, but also it's not a time for employers to be making cuts um, to staffing um, if they don't need to. Um, where um, employers are making proposed redundancies or hours cuts, that needs to be genuine. We can't have employers now stepping forward trying to take advantage of this opportunity. People need to stay and work as much as possible and get an income. Thanks, Mike. Um, I think that what they should be doing is, um, um, is, is focusing in, in on a, a, a subsidy. I think there's other areas, though. Um, local government could be looking at rates, rate increases, um, rates abatement. Um, you know, there are costs um, that are imposed on businesses that uh, could be better managed by local government. Mm. Um, and I think we should be looking at that. But um, interfering with your tax system, I don't think that that's a time for that right now. It'll be too confusing for the market, but I think focusing on the employee and having them retain their jobs is that, critical. That uh, increase to the minimum wage is still set to come in at the start of next month. Should they delay that? Um, 
I, I think there's been a discussion there. The government has said categorically no. Um, I actually believe that we are in an environment of negotiation. Um, could it be some now and some later? Is there another way of managing mm. it? I don't think it should come off the table. It was put in for a purpose, and that was to achieve equity with employees. Tali, are you prepared to negotiate on that front? Absolutely not. It's critical that low-paid workers um, actually increase their income to have livable wages. 1890 doesn't quite cut it, but at least it's some way better. But it's better a job, and, and you say that, 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 that preserving jobs has to be the priority here. Yep, preserving jobs needs to be priority, and also making, pe making sure that people have livable incomes. Mm. All right, tēnā kōrua. Thank you so much for your time. Tali Williams sure. from First Union and Michael Barnett from the Auckland Business Chamber. After the break on Q&A, we're going to shift our attention to Wototahi Christchurch. Today's anniversary, uh, anniversary memorial has of course been cancelled, but we want to bring you some of the stories of the people affected by the Christchurch attacks. That's next. Hoki mai. Those who perished in the March 15th massacre and their families are in the prayers of Muslims all over New Zealand today. Fina Owen spoke to four leaders from Manawatu about their experiences in a post-massacre Aotearoa. The massive attack of, of um, March the 15th made a, lot of made a lot of New Zealanders unite in rejection in rejection of this um, of discrimination, in rejection of of um, of white supremacy, and made the whole New Zealand society much more sympathetic towards the others. I feel that people are more understanding now. People have come to know. People have come inside the mosque. They have bought, uh, got a bit of knowledge about Islam, and they consider that. This is not the religion they have been thinking about it wrongly. So we have a very positive image, cleared, people, people can ask questions, people can understand. And that's why we had many, many converts in the last one year. Last one year, many uh, uh, people came to us and they embraced Islam. I converted to Islam in 1986. It's a long time ago. <laughs> My journey to Islam started in Southeast Asia and, um, and I um, became interested through multiple tours to Singapore when we had a New Zealand base there. As a young soldier I didn't care about anything in life, just had a good time. But as I got older and wiser I think I wanted to learn more about what I was seeing and um, many people have conversations with me. They have no idea they're talking to a Muslim and we're no different than any other New Zealander here. These differences ain't that deep and we can live, we can live cohesively, happily, side by side. If there's any sort of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of people being uh, negative towards you, if they, they, if, uh, they say something uh, against you as a Muslim or, or they passed a comment, anything of that sort, uh, if, if there was assault uh, somewhere out there, we make sure everything is registered here. Most people do not want to go to the police. So we have a register here. We will let the police know that this incident took place. Uh, all of these isolated incidents uh, has been happening and still happening till now. 
but I don't think, although we don't like it because it's women that bear the brunt of it, uh, but I still think it's not a limiting factor for our living here in New Zealand. I manage security right across New Zealand on all the Islamic uh, sites, the mosques and Islamic centres. In some places there aren't too many changes at all and they are simply by choice, but in many places, um, including this place, we are in a constant state of lockdown. In my security role, the amount of incidents that are happening around New Zealand now, which is all post-15 March, is shocking. And, and it might be more because we are really aware of it. Um, so, yeah, we take our security very seriously now, um, and that's the same right across New Zealand. And it'll get stronger because we're about to run a program for many mosques and Islamic centres through New Zealand to provide um, additional security to all of them. I don't think any Muslim has got anything to complain about how the government dealt with the whole, with the whole atrocity. I spent about 10 days in Christchurch after that atrocity because I was part of the um, the ritual washing team that washed the bodies of the uh, of the victims, uh, but on those days, I sensed and I felt that this, the togetherness and the, uh, from from the New Zealand society as well as from the New Zealand government. Jacinda is uh, an amazing lady. She she uh, we we love her in all the community, not, not only the Muslim community, wherever she goes, everyone, everyone loves her. The key words were arwa, love, the love we got from our, our Kiwi brothers and sisters, we will never be able to repay back at any stage. You know, this, this, is, this, this was beyond our normal thinking, that there's so much love out there for us. We are being acknowledged as, a, as, a, as an integral member of the uh, wider New Zealand society. If you take it from, from, from how people acknowledge us now, I think it's, it's easier now. Previously, uh, people just minded their own business. If, they, if they're walking past the mosque, they're walking past the mosque. Now, if they're walking past the mosque, they, they, they will, I guarantee they will wave to you or say good morning or good afternoon to you. After the break on Q&A, a strong message from a top Muslim leader. Should the government apologise? Yes. Not just the government, there are individuals in the government that should apologise. And when I say government, I'm talking the public sector. The Islamic Women's Council told the Royal Commission into the Christchurch attacks that a whole-of-government approach is required to strengthen connections with vulnerable communities and better protect them from extremism. Alia Dan Sison is the government coordinator for the council. She says Muslim New Zealanders are seeing improvements since March 15th, but there's still a long way to go. Should the government apologise? Yes. Not just the government, there are individuals in the government that should apologize. And when I say government, I'm talking the public sector. Mm. Um, and the, why an apology? People want to know why an apology. And, and you speak Spanish, and the word lo siento means I feel it, I feel your pain. And in English, we say I'm sorry, it's I feel your sorrow. And we need the um, government, 
both um, capital G and low G to actually express what they understand about our pain and the pain that they have caused us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And that's where you start with mm. healing, is acknowledging someone's pain and then moving from there to, to solve that pain. When you say individuals should apologize, who are those individuals? Um, well, the State Services Commissioner, I believe, owes us in New Zealand an apology. We went to him when we, uh, all the way up to him through the public service saying there were problems, we need help, and we gave him examples. And um, yeah, nothing others? happened. Yes, there are. Who are the others? Um, we'll leave it for the Royal Commission, but as I said, we've worked our mm. way all the way up to him through people who were in charge, which means we went through executives, and um, we this weren't is before heard. the attack. Yes. to be clear, and that we were warning them. Do you want an apology from the Prime Minister as a representative of the government? Yes. And what form should that take? She should decide. She's, she's been beside us. She'll know. She's, we are having discussions with her, but as a representation of the government, a representative, rather, of the government, yes. But um, as an individual, she's mm -hmm. been listening. Mm -hmm. And when you say you've been having conversations yep. with the Prime Minister, do those conversations include the possibility of an apology? We've never raised it directly to her. I think it's something that, that should come from people. Has the government done enough in responding to the events of March 15th? Obviously, there are still significant concerns about the events leading up to the attacks. But what about the response? Um, it's a good start. I think there was a blow. Um, you have to recover from a blow mm -hmm. if you're in any situation. And I think they recovered. And they're, they're, we're um, able to have discussions across government. But um, that restructuring of the public service has to happen. Um, because the advice that comes up through the public service for the government mm -hmm. to act effectively has to be accurate and solid. And in our case, we don't feel it was. In recent weeks, uh, it, it's become clear that the second tranche of gun regulations have stalled. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's really ironic because um, it's about registering guns. Mm. And uh, we register our cars, we register our dogs mm. with the idea of safety. So if a dog bites somebody, then we can track down. Mm. You know, if, if I hit somebody with my car, it can be tracked down. So they're registered in that way. It's ironic that a product that's sole purpose is to kill, it doesn't have any other benefits, um, isn't registered. And um, if people are serious about the safety of New Zealand, mm. then the guns would be registered. It helps police assess the security um, I've gotten threats in the last year, and it would help um, police know if, if the individual is in a, a situation where they can act on those threats or not. You met with Facebook or representatives of Facebook last month. How did you assess that experience? We've met with them a couple times, not just last month. Um, I think Facebook is making some progress, um, definitely on uh, addressing some of the concerns related to, to um, extreme content, mm. um, but they can be doing more. They can um, be supporting so that our children aren't regularly harassed online. Um, and there are aspects, for example, they could be identifying location of people or identifying um, 
that the person's using a VPN, therefore hiding their location, which will assist in the safety of our, our children. But also, um, we had an issue with, with Facebook that related to New Zealand's brand. There was a, a Facebook page that was saying war on Islam in New Zealand prior to the attacks. Mm. And we had raised it with Facebook, and they refused to take it down. Now, we were saying it was impacting New Zealand's brand because it was given the appearance that there are all this hate and it would be welcoming and inviting people into New Zealand. Right. That was in 2015 and I raised it with their top global policy person in person. And um, still today, we think that those kinds of things can happen. Um, they're asking us as individuals to monitor their product. Mm. And we think that Facebook themselves, who is a, a very wealthy company, should be um, making sure that their product is safe for everyone that uses it. Do Muslims in New Zealand feel that a similar attack could happen again? We recognize it's a possibility. We recognize um, this was an individual who, who did it, and there, there's no question that there are, you can, can find already people who've been arrested that are, are um, espousing similar views. So we understand that. Um, and um, we're taking as much precaution as we can, and we, we're aware, and, but we're also living our lives. We've been able to move forward in a, quite a productive way, and you see, would say it's kind of like a winter. We're starting to see the dawn of our community coming back like a spring, and, and it's um, refreshing to see that. We have babies born, we have people getting engaged, and, and, um, and moving forward, and that's, refreshing and the resilience of our community has been amazing. Mm. Finally this morning, in these uncertain times, we want to bring you a story of hope. The events of March 15th have tested the faith of many people in Christchurch, Muslim or not. One of them is John Milne. He's a man that many people in Christchurch might have seen or spoken to, or even in some cases deliberately ignored. And he's a man with a message that has been tested. The Brougham Street speed limit is 60 k's. That means plenty of vehicles are doing 68. The ground shakes with the engine braking. But by the trucks and the dust, John Milne just wants peace. How many hours will you spend on the road a day? Oh, it depends on the day. Um... I usually start about nine and then finish about six. It's a few years since John began standing on Christchurch's streets, offering gentle messages of encouragement and hope. Hey, get on you. What are you trained as? Uh, I got my site safe and I got my farming and I got my welding. Oh, you're bound to get a job. Yeah. And though he realises that many motorists write him off or don't give him a second thought, he sees this as his calling. You don't belong to a denomination, but you identify as being a religious man. Yeah. I've tried many denominations, and there's trouble with so many is they tend to think they're the only one, and they've got some sort of monopoly on heaven. <laughs> and I can't handle that. But John Milne hasn't always felt this way. For a period of his life, he described himself as Muslim. You believe in a God? Yeah. You married a Muslim woman. Yeah. Fell in you, love. Your children are Muslim. You are no longer Muslim. I studied the, the Sunnah, mm -hmm. which is all the things that Muhammad did and said. I studied the Hadith. It was just too complex for me to, to go along with. 
And so I pulled out, I, I renounced my faith in Islam and said that Muhammad isn't my prophet. And though John Milne no longer attended mosque, his former wife and his children still did. I was on the corner of the, the Eastgate corner waiting for a bus and I saw all the police cars. I knew my boy had passed as soon as I found out that there'd been a shooting in the mosque. I knew he'd died. We didn't get the official news. It was horrible actually waiting to be told. I can remember going to Hagley High School where we sort of met, we gathered together and we waited and waited and at one stage the police, one of the police women there said, I don't think your boy's on the list. And I knew he'd passed, but it gave me a glimmer of hope. But he was on the list. For John, the awful confirmation finally came. Syed Milne, his 14-year-old son, was among those killed at Al Noor Mosque. He was quiet, friendly, outgoing, loved by many, a gentle soul, who a little boy called Harry, he, he befriended when he first went to Lillian Primary School and he was the new entrant. And that little boy admired and respected Syed so much that he raised funds and organised a tree planting for the 51 victims. And that was a sort of boy my, my boy was. He left his mark wherever he went. The year since his son's death has been especially difficult for John Milne. For months, he stopped standing on the street. Many motorists in Christchurch may never have noticed, but John stopped holding up his sign. He disappeared. You have to forgive everyone to really love everyone. And I had to forgive the gunman before I could hold a sign up that says that, I had to actually forgive him. But as he approached the anniversary of Syed's death, John Milne reflected on his son's faith, and he decided he was ready to go back outside. The Muslim belief is, is that if you are praying in a mosque at Friday prayers, then your immediate destination is paradise. A year since the massacre, John Milne believes that his son is at peace. And at an unlikely location on the corner of Colombo and Broham, John has found peace as well. That's John Milne. You know, when you ring his cell phone and it goes to voicemail, it just goes, this is John, love everyone. Before we go on Q&A, a recap of what we have learnt this hour. The Prime Minister has detailed new self-isolation requirements for all travellers to New Zealand, bar those coming from the Pacific Islands. And if you don't do it, this can be enforced. Expect a significant economic support package on Tuesday. Public health specialist Professor Michael Baker says the government has got this right and the health community will be relieved. He says New Zealand still has the chance to contain COVID-19, but a military-style operation to test people may be needed. 
Marae is up next. This morning, the Marae team meets a Muslim woman who teaches te reo Māori. Plus, they look back at the 1918 flu epidemic, which was devastating for Māori. What lessons were learnt that might help in today's response to COVID-19? For the latest on the response, go to tvnz.co.nz and onenewsnow.co.nz and there will be a special tonight, uh, One News Bulletin tonight at 6 o'clock. That's us though, kua mutu, thanks for watching Q&A and nā mihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your contributions. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.